Good morning. Our scripture this morning is found in the New Testament. For those of you that have your Bibles, uh, where the book is Ephesians, the chapter is three, it's all of the chapters. Uh, there are Bibles on the back of the pews for those of you who would like to follow along. And the number is 977. That's 977. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hitting for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of the work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Good morning again, church. A couple quick announcements. I mentioned in my prayer the passing of our sister Shirley Gildersleeve. She was 91 years old, dear saint of this church for many years. Her viewing is this Tuesday night at Beale Funeral Home from 5 to 7 p.m. 
And then the service will be right here on Wednesday at 12 o'clock with a meal to follow. So please look out for that email as that'll go out, but also be praying for the family. And then these beautiful flowers here are placed by Chris Mickish in honor of his wife Sandy for their 43rd wedding anniversary. So congratulations to Chris and Sandy. We're in a series, we just kicked it off last week, a summer series entitled Exploring Christianity. Exploring Christianity. This series is meant to help us understand what Christianity is all about. Uh, What does Christianity believe about a variety of issues that are important to our faith and really wrestled with in our society today? Things like, what does Christianity teach about freedom and about the church and about the Bible and about our identity and about sexuality and and a number of things that that we want to know, we need to know. What does Christianity teach? What does the Bible teach about these issues? This is a series for those of you who who are not yet Christians, but want to understand more about the Bible and about Christianity. This is also a series for those of of you who are Christians and want to grow in your knowledge of what you believe and why you believe it. And the truth is, that's all of us. We all need to grow in understanding what we believe and why we believe it. This is a great series for you to invite a friend or family member to jump in at any time this summer. Today we're looking at Christianity and the church. Christianity and the church. This is a really important topic because one of the biggest obstacles to people embracing Christianity is the church. We just have to face that reality. I don't normally quote religious leaders of other faiths, but to quote Mahatma Gandhi, he said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now I could do a lot to unpack that with Gandhi, but I'll just leave that out there. Over the years, I've heard many criticisms of the church and organized religion. It happened that last week at Grace Gives when we're washing cars, I'm talking to people. Do you say you're Christian? Yeah, here's what I believe. Do you go to church? No. Here, why? Well, then, then you get all the list of criticisms and many of them are, are we, have to, we have to come to grips with these. Maybe some of you can relate to these. People say the church is judgmental. It's full of hypocrites. The church is too political. It's a social club. It's cliquish. The church just wants your money. The church has caused so much damage in history. I mean, look at all the abuse and violence. Or maybe the most poignant critique, honestly, the most compelling critique is when someone says, the church has caused so much damage to me personally. It has wounded my family or a friend that I know. Many of us have been hurt by a local church. Maybe, maybe you had an abusive pastor. Maybe he was spiritually authoritarian or maybe there was physical abuse. I don't know. Maybe you grew up in a church where there was a lot of infighting. People just back and forth. Maybe you, you saw church members acting worse in the church than people outside of the church do. I've had friends who, who've literally been in church meetings where people get into fist fights in a business meeting. 
And the reason why most of us aren't laughing is we, 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 can, we, can, we can literally visualize that. We're like, yeah, I can see it getting to that. I may not know exactly what wounds a church has caused you, but in full transparency, before we get started, I too have been hurt by, by church. When I was a little kid, my dad was the chairman of the deacons at our home church, and it happened at a time where it came to light that the pastor, who had been there a few years at that point, it came to light that the pastor had lied about his educational credentials. And I saw firsthand and witnessed my dad, uh, the emotional toll it took on him as he endured long meetings, late meetings, people telling him what he should do and what, they should, what he shouldn't do, and telling him uh, what, what he's doing wrong. And, and I saw, literally as a kid, I saw the burden of all this weighing on my dad who was already going through so many health challenges. And I thought, wow, he, why does he love the church and why does he even put up with this? But he did, joyfully. When I graduated college, you know, I wanted to be a medical doctor and God radically changed the gears. I went into, I was going to pursue ministry. Before I went to seminary, I thought, you know what? Skip the seminary, skip the, the, the schooling. I'm going to go right into ministry. I took a staff position at a church that I was a part of in, in college. And for that first summer after I graduated, I served. And I was excited. It's my first ministry. It quickly became evident that the pastor and I had different ministry philosophies. And I tried to navigate as best I could, and I wanted to have conversations. But after just three months, without warning, without a plan, I was brought in, and I was terminated. I was let go. I was crushed. I get it. I get it. Being a part of a church can be messy and wounding. And all of this begs the question, do we really need church? Can't we just follow Jesus as one man told me as passionately as he could this past week, two weeks ago at Grace Gives, and he was adamant, I can love Jesus, I do not need the church. One pastor cited a study recently that found 81% of Americans said yes to this question. Do you believe you can be a very good Christian without attending a church? And 81% said yes. So, we have to tackle these questions. How important is the church? Can you live the Christian life without the church? And then why should you commit to the church if it's so messed up? These are hard questions, and admittedly, I can't provide the entire biblical vision for the church in one sermon. If you've been around here, you know we talk often about God's vision for the church, but just, just consider this sermon a primer, if you will. As we look at Ephesians 3 and what it says about God's vision for the church. Lesson number one from Ephesians 3 is that surprisingly, the church is God's plan A and there's no plan B. First of all, what is a church? We're using this word. Paul uses the word in verse 10. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be on display. What is that? What is the church? The word church in the New Testament used over a hundred times, it, it's the word ekklesia in Greek. Ekklesia. It means this, and this is really important, that's why I'm giving you the Greek word. Ekklesia means an assembly. A gathering of people with shared beliefs. It literally means called out ones. Meaning a group of people that, that gather 
and are distinct from the people around them because of their shared beliefs. That's the church. Notice that inherent in the definition is a gathering. A gathering of people. That's why Jesus said the very first instance of church in the New Testament is found in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is, is, is talking to the disciples and Peter says, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and we looked at this several weeks ago and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Jesus tells us, it's my church, it's not yours, disciples, even Peter, you and the apostles are going to be the foundation, it's not even your church, it's my church, he says, and I'm going to build my church, he says, and he says it's going to endure, and it's going to thrive, and he says, listen, not even the gates of hell, not the worst evil can destroy my plan for this gathering of people who are going to share in what, what do they believe? It's going to be built on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he gathers together in the New Testament this incredibly diverse group of people into a supernaturally unified group. The church is not a building or an organization. It, you know, if we could, with the, when, we, when we register this building, unfortunately we have to follow the laws. And so this building is named Grace Baptist Church at 7210 Racetrack Road. It's just what it is. It is what it is. But honestly, when we clear out here and there's nobody here, this isn't Grace Baptist Church. It's a beautiful building. I'm so glad we have it. I'm so glad we can meet here. I think of all the incredible things we can do here. But listen, you know what's Grace Baptist Church? This, us, right now is the gathering of Grace Baptist Church. And when we disperse, it's Grace Baptist Church scattered. This is the church. We are the church. And here's what I say. It's point number one. Surprisingly, the church, local churches like us, is God's plan A. And I say surprisingly because even back in the first century when Paul is writing this, what he's teaching here in Ephesians, that the church... Notice what he talks about, that Gentiles and Jews together make up the church. That is radical news. And he has to explain it. In fact, he says four times in this chapter that what he is teaching is a mystery. Notice verse 3, how the mystery was made known to be a revelation from God. Verse 4, I'm giving you insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, the mystery is this. And then he shares the mystery. In Greek, the word mystery means something very different than we, when, we, when we say mystery in English. In English, mystery means something difficult or impossible to understand. Like, it's a mystery to me where my keys went. I, just can't, I can never understand how they end up there. It's a mystery. It's a mystery to me how we just cleaned the house and five minutes later it looks like a tornado went through. I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. Maybe more so my wife will never understand it. 
That's in English. No, but in the New Testament, that's not what mystery means. Here's what mystery means. You might want to write this down. It's an important New Testament concept. I didn't write it. I didn't want to fill your... Here's what it means. Mystery means, in the New Testament, something that was once hidden, but is now revealed. Something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed, now been made known. So what is the mystery that Paul has been called to preach, that he's teaching them? Verse 6, he makes it as clear as can be. The mystery that was once hidden but has now been revealed is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a mystery. This is, the, this is what has been revealed to Paul as he is the apostle to the Gentiles and he's telling everyone now, listen, Gentiles who are just non-Jews, anyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile, and Jews are equal members in the body of Christ, the family of God. They're adopted through faith in the gospel. Do you realize how crazy that would have sounded to many Jews? Did you know that in the Jewish temple that Jesus himself walked in as a Jewish man, as a rabbi, the one that he taught in and engaged people in and, and, and confronted the Pharisees and overturned the tables, the one that he eventually was, by the Pharisees, was condemned by, by some of them, that same temple had this huge wall separating where Jews could go in and Gentiles to stay out. And it was a massive wall, super thick, super high, and there was literally a sign outside the wall that read this, quote, foreigners, i.e. Gentiles, must not enter. Any Gentile entering beyond this wall will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now can you see when I, when I say that, it, that it's surprising... <laughs> The church is God's plan A. God's plan in creating the church was to bring two groups of people who shared nothing in common except a centuries-old hatred of each other. And he says, through these, these two groups becoming one, I'm going to make the gospel visible. You see, in Ephesians 1 and 2, as the build-up to this chapter Paul has spent his whole time in this letter so far explaining the cosmic plan of the gospel. What God has been doing through the good news of Jesus Christ. And, God, and he goes back, here's a quick recap. God's plan from the beginning of time, chapter 1, was to unite all things in heaven and earth under the lordship, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And he does that. He's, he's doing that work of bringing, uh, uniting all things under the authority of Christ. He's doing that now here on earth through the church by bringing people of different backgrounds and different cultures and joining them together. And Paul explains how the unity of the church is not rooted in any one culture or any stage of life or any common interest or our, our level of income or anything at all. No, the unity of a church is solely on the work of Jesus Christ done on the cross. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2, let me level the playing field for you all. After chapter 1, kind of showing this grand vision, he says, listen, chapter 2, don't you realize we were all dead in our trespasses and sin? Every human on the planet has this bent in their heart to living life apart from God because we want to be in charge, don't we? 
I don't want anybody ruling my life. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And so that the Bible calls that our rebellion against God. And Paul says, listen, you might not think it's a big deal because you've never murdered anyone and you've never done the bad sins. But listen, the evil in your heart, that bent on living life apart from God, he says the judgment for that is condemnation. He says, quote, we are children of wrath. In other words, we deserve God's just punishment for our rebellion, and that punishment is eternal separation from God for all of eternity in hell. And he wants all of us to feel the weight of that so that when he says the next few words, it bursts forth like a ray of light because he, then he says in Ephesians 2, but that's not the whole story. He says, but God, which are two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. We who were dead in our sins, God looks at us and he raises us to life's new life spiritually. And only God can do that. And it's only done through faith in the finished work of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he went living the life you and I should have lived but couldn't. He was perfect. And then he died the death you and I should have died. He bore all of God's punishment for sin. All, he, he, he bore all the consequences that you and I deserve because of our sin. And then just like we sang in King of Kings, three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. It was a dead man walking and he proved he's the only person in the history of the world to predict his death and resurrection and then actually do it. And he said, look, and he gathered 500 people and said, look, I am, I am actually me. It's me. Touch me. I'm real. I'm back to life. Well, well, what are you? I'm king of kings and lord of lords. I'm the resurrected king. And I now can not only forgive your sin through my death, I can give you eternal life through my resurrection life. Will you receive it? That's what he did. That's what Paul is explaining. And Paul makes it clear this salvation is offered as a gift of grace, not by your works. I'd say 80% of the people we talk to at Grace Gives, if they do believe even if there is a heaven and hell, or if, there is a, if they're going to go to be with God when they die, 80% of people say, how do you get to heaven? By being a good person. By doing good works. And hopefully your, your good outweighs your bad on the, on the kind of cosmic scale. Like, oh, it just edged it. Woo! Thank goodness, because eternity was in the balance. No, that's not true if you actually read the Bible. It's not true if you want to understand Christianity. And that's not true because we know how good is good enough. We know that breaks down really quickly. No, we're not forgiven and set free by our good works. We're forgiven and set, pre, set free by the unmerited grace of God. It's given as a gift. We receive it. And so I want to start, if you're, if you're not a Christian now, I want to start by saying, listen, more important than the church is first understanding you become part of the church by trusting in Christ. Have you done that? Have you said, you know what? What I need most is a savior, a rescuer. Maybe you feel shame for what you've done in the past. Maybe there's guilt in you. God says, listen, I can set you free. It's an amazing truth. Why did God do this, though? Why did, he, why did he save individuals? What was his purpose in saving us and then leaving us here on earth? He could have said, ha, you trust in Christ? Off you go, straight into heaven, into glory. 
But he didn't do that. He leaves us right here in the mess, in the battle. So why? God's plan all along, Paul tells us, in rescuing individuals from sin and death was to gather people together from all backgrounds into something called a local church. Surprisingly, the church is God's plan A. It's his eternal plan to make the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it's his eternal plan to make the gospel visible. You see, the gospel is good news, but how do we see that lived out? God says, ah, that's what the church is for. You put the gospel on display. There is no plan B. There's no backup if the church doesn't work out. God has literally invested everything in the church. The church is the glory of God here on earth right now. There's no other part of the plan. There's no other section he's still going to do. Now, I know what you're thinking. The church is the glory of God? The church made up of messy, flawed people? And my answer is, well, God's answer is yes. Because you see the messiness, we see the messiness as evidence that it can't be God's thing because God is perfect and pure and holy. But we ought to look at the messiness as evidence of our need for the gospel of grace. Of our continual need for it. You see, listen, let me try to walk this through real quick. If the church was built on our moral superiority, right? If the church was founded on the fact that we are people that are better morally than the rest of the world, then yes, our flaws would be evidence that the church is an absolute failure. But the church is not founded on our moral superiority. The church was not founded on our credentials at all. The church was founded on the credentials of Jesus. And the fact that the perfect Son of God gave Himself up to forgive us and restore ragamuffins like us shows and proves that the church has been birthed and is sustained by sheer grace. Sheer grace. We become part of the church by grace and we never graduate from needing that grace. If you're here and you're like, I just trusted Christ a few months ago, a few weeks ago, it, all grace. You know what grace means? Meaning it was given it freely. God gave you, if, you, if I were to write a million dollar check, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> that changes everything. I know. If God were to give you eternal life, then you should be like, oh, that really changes everything. Forget the million dollar check. And if you've been, and if you've been a follower of Christ for decades, you should still feel the weight of it. By sheer grace, you're still a Christian. That's why churches are still messed up. Because when someone trusts Christ, they're forgiven, they're made new, but they still struggle with sin. We still live in a broken world. The beauty of the church is not that it's better than other groups, but that its members readily admit that we are selfish and we desperately need moment-by-moment grace. That's the beauty of the church. If you look at the church and say it's full of hypocrites, it likely is. But, but you know what? We admit it. I would, I would push back and say, does the world admit it? Does the world admit the hypocrisy of saying you can be anything you want, but they know you can't? Listen, God delights to use broken people to display his grace and do his work on her, here on earth. Because if he didn't, if he didn't delight in using broken people, guess what? There'd be no one to display his glory 
and do his work. Are you surprised that God chose to entrust messed up churches with the greatest message in the universe? Then I would just say you're not alone. We've had 2,000 years of people scratching their heads wondering, is this really the, is this really the game plan, God? You become a Christian, then you read the Bible, and you're like, is, is, this, is this your grand plan? Is this your ace in the hole? Like, is this what you decided, this is my aha thing? It is. 2 Corinthians 4, another letter Paul wrote, he says this, we have this treasure, the treasure of Jesus, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay, meaning we're, we're really messed up. Our bodies are like jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The church is God's plan A, surprisingly, and there is no plan B, but lesson number two. The church is the ultimate display of God's wisdom and power. In verses 1 to 13, Paul is making the case for his own role in sharing the mystery of the church. That is, everyone who believes the gospel, no matter your background, social, racial, economic, you can be united to Christ and the body of Christ. And then Paul says in verse 10, I love how he puts it, all of this was so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan for the world is to build his church and let it be the ultimate display of his incredible wisdom and power. His, as, as Paul says, his manifold wisdom. You're like, manifold? Isn't that like a thing in the car? No. Manifold wisdom means multifaceted wisdom. He's saying, it's like the many sides of a diamond. You know why a diamond, I don't have a diamond, why am I going like this? Uh, you know why a diamond sparkles? It's because it has so many sides. When the light hits it, it refracts it and it, and, it, and, it, and it shoots out in brilliant light and it reflects it and it sparkles, it dazzles. That's why a diamond is so beautiful. It has so many sides. And Paul is saying, that's why God's wisdom is so magnificent. So when you look at the church, you're supposed to see his wisdom on display. His grace should be sparkling. How? Because the church is meant to be a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-political community that is not united by our secondary issues, but united by the gospel of Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Also hear this. Let me put a caveat. We don't ignore our differences. We don't minimize them. We dialogue. We wrestle. We listen well. But our unity in diversity is meant to display the beautiful tapestry of God's wisdom. And the lack of unity and diversity detracts from God's wisdom. There are different kinds of diamonds. And I figured that out when I was trying to buy one for my wife before we got married. And then they were showing, you know, I went to a jewelry store and they showed me like the big ones. I'm like, oh, can I get a little bit smaller? A little bit more smaller? Yeah, that one. The guy's like, can you even see it? I was like, I don't know, but that's the one I need. So, um, but he's like, you know, it's not just about the size. Thank the Lord. Woo! Okay, what else is there? He says there, it's about color, right, and clarity, right? There's different colors. Like it, it can be super clear. It can be like yellowish. And then there's like um, blemishes in each diamond that you can't even see with the naked eye. You need like a super microscope to see it. And you're like, oh yeah, there's a little speck. Ah, oh, that takes $1,000 off. 
I think that's the one I need right there. <laughs> no, the point is, right? If God's church is meant to be a diamond, he wants it to be the perfect cut, the perfect clarity, the perfect color, dazzling for the world to see his wisdom and power. But sadly, what churches sometimes do is like, no, 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 we're not going to do unity and diversity. We want, the, we want to be all yellow and, and murky over here. Because I want my own way. I want my facet to be the greatest facet. Well, it just won't sparkle. But that's the point. It's, to, it's meant to sparkle. It's meant to show the manifold wisdom of God. And, the, and God's point here, Paul's point here is, only the gospel can create that kind of unity in a church. Only, chapter 2, only the cross has the power, as Paul says, to tear down the walls that we tend to build with each other. In the church, God brings people together who in many respects should be enemies, or at least never associate otherwise, and have them develop deep, meaningful relationships in the local church. And so if you are someone on the far left politically, and you walk in and you start talking to someone and you find they're on the far right, if your first response is, whoo, I'm not hanging out with that guy ever. That's a gospel issue in your heart, not a church issue. If you say, I'm young, I don't want to associate with people who are older, they don't know what I'm going through, they don't know what, 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 I'm, what, what life is like right now, that's a gospel issue in your heart. That brother or sister in Christ knows more than you might ever know. And if you'll just sit down with them, you'll find that's true. And if you're all, same thing, older to younger, it's whatever it is. I like to hang out with people who make like kind of my stage, you know, my stage of life and my income because I don't want to talk to people who are super wealthy because they're kind of arrogant and people who are down here because I, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. Are you joking? Are you kidding? Forget, throw that out, throw that out. It's like, no, we hang out together. We fellowship together. Why? Because we see Christ in each other as a greater unifying power than anything else. And we're going to say, I know you said, haven't you guys said this before? Yeah, we keep saying it to her blue in the face. Why? Because it's what God says and we know the dangers that are caused by coming together around secondary issues. It is not a church. And you might think, wow, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Right? Bring people who are radically different, bring them together, show their common union in Christ, and live together in astonishing love and unity. Pfft. Give me a break. Paul says, guess what? This is not just meant to be done so that people around the world can take notice, which it is. He says, this is so that the spiritual beings, verse 10, beings, authorities, and rulers in the heavenly places meant look on and be amazed. It makes the angels scratch their heads in a wonder and amazement like, these people, God, are so messed up. I mean, they still use their words to tear each other down. They, they are often selfish and judgmental and they have so little in common. Why in the world would they enjoy getting together every week? Why in the world would they keep forgiving and loving and serving one another? Why in the world would they even share their hearts and share their dreams and share their resources and share their lives together? And God's answer is, ah, because when they do, my manifold wisdom is on display. Angels are stunned 
by God's brilliance in the church, in his design of the church, which begs the question, do you? As messed up and flawed as churches are, God has not and will not ever abandon this church. It is his plan. It is his wisdom and power on display. And if God is that committed, shouldn't we be too? If the church is central to God's eternal purpose for the world, for the universe, shouldn't it be central to our lives too? Are you treating the church as peripheral when you're in your life when God considers it central to your life? What does this mean practically? I'm going to say it as clear as I can. As a Christian, it means you should commit to and be involved in a local church. If you were listening at all to when Ephesians 3 was read, you noticed all three members of the Trinity are involved in this plan. He's bowing before the Father. It's God's great mystery, God's great grace involved in the mystery of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Spirit is working. Several times the Spirit is, is, involved, is, is mentioned in what God is doing in bringing it together the church and the glory of His church. So here's what I want to say. If every member of the Trinity is committed to this one thing, the display of God's wisdom and power through the local church, why do you and I think it should be optional for us? And I say this with all the love in my heart. A love of a pastor that longs to see you rooted in Christ and maturing in Christ and to see us maturing together as the body of Christ, which is chapter 4. If you are a Christian, you should be gathering weekly with a local church to worship Jesus and to, and to love His saints. Yes, there are exceptions, but those are rare. Watching church at home can never take the place of gathering with the people of God to worship and pray and learn and love. And I think most of you know that now, having all of us having done it, don't, don't, you, don't you realize it was not the same? It kind of was nice to eat breakfast and watch. I get it. But it, at, at the end of it, you know, something wasn't missing. Something was missing. Something was off. Not only that, it's not just about showing up, it's about making a commitment. When you read this passage, you see God's commitment. It's so obvious. His commitment to the church. He sold out to the church, and that's what made Paul so committed. That's what he says. I'm literally, a, verse 1, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was in a prison cell right now in Rome, writing the letter to Ephesus. Did you know that? And he says, no, I'm not a prisoner of Rome right now. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was a prisoner for, for proclaiming the gospel. And that's why he says in verse 13, I don't want you to lose heart over my suffering. But, but, so then why, why are you so committed? Look, Paul literally arranged his life mission around God's eternal mission. Paul literally arranged his life mission around, around God's eternal mission. And my question to you is, have you done that? Have you reordered your life mission around God's eternal mission? 
Are you that committed? Have you become a member of a local church? Like a committed member. I get it. There's all kinds of excuses not to do so. Uh, we, we live in an area where people come and go every few years. Military, government. I, I don't want to commit in, in two years. No, that's not good enough. You've got to commit. It's worth committing even for just a year. Two years, three years. Who knows what God's going to do anyway? Oh, I don't just want my name on a, on a list. That, that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean anything. I have people asking me all the time, how can I grow as a Christian? How can I see God at work in my life? And I have, like, I have one simple answer. Commit to the local church. I know that sounds like, um, that's not good enough. Can I get something more? No. The local church is God's training ground for the Christian life. It's where we learn. You wanna, I need to learn how to love people, to forgive people, to share with those in, who, who need help, to sacrifice. I need help laughing and crying with others and confronting sin and having my sin confronted. I need to learn how to bear with other people who are, who are going through something. I need to learn how to pray and study the Bible and most, so much more. Okay, great. Guess where that happens? Right here with the local church. This is the training ground for, you don't even have to go to seminary for that. And, and, and seminary is great. But semi, I would, my seminary degree did not train me to be a Christian. God's church did. How involved should you be in the local church? I think the question honestly is this. How much do you really want to see God at work in your life? That's the question you should ask yourself. Don't ask, how involved should I be? How many days a week? How, I got to make sure that, okay. But you should just be asking yourself, how much do you really want to see God at work in your life? And plan accordingly. How much do you want to see your life display the wisdom and power of God? Make a commitment. Get involved. Maybe you're here and you'd say, look, I love Jesus, but I just don't love the church. Jesus is amazing, kind of the Gandhi thing. Jesus is amazing, but his church is full of messy, judgmental hypocrites. Two things, real quick. First of all, I would say respectfully, as much as this, even this is a messy church, I can tell you firsthand, this is the most loving church I have ever been a part of. People give and share and sacrifice and bear burdens and pray for each other. And I don't just mean on the weekends. I mean every single day of the week I see and hear of this church family loving one another physically and emotionally and spiritually and everything in between. It's truly a miracle. An incredible miracle. It's beautiful. Secondly, you say you love Jesus but not the church. Don't you know that Jesus loves the church? Like, he says that exactly that in Ephesians 5.25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you tell me, Mark, I think you're a great guy. Right? I think you're, I think you're good looking. I think you're charismatic <laughs> and funny. Yes, yes. No, no. Mark, I think you're great, but I don't like being around your wife. She's quiet and, and um, introverted. Do you think I'm going to say, oh, that's fine. You can love me without loving my wife. Let's hang out together. Let's do stuff together. No way, man. That's my bride. 
Right? I love her with all that I am. You can't really love me without loving her. Plus, if you knew her, you would know she's the more amazing one. I mean, good grief. She makes me look good. I mean, I... Listen, you can't love Jesus without loving the bride for which he gave his life. It really means, let's just put all the cards on the table, it just really means you don't love Jesus. Lesson three. I want to encourage every one of you to pray with boldness that God would do extraordinary things in and through our church. Paul closes the chapter with a prayer. Verses 14 to 21 is a prayer. Now that I've, he said, now that I tell you this great mystery, it's so amazing, I want to pray that it would sink in, that it would become more and more real. And he says in verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence to God's prayer, God's presence. And so that's why he's going to God with boldness. He says, look, we know God created the church as this radically diverse group to display his unifying power in Christ. And we need to go beyond just knowing this to experiencing it. And so he prays, I'm going to pray this wild and crazy prayer, this bold prayer, as he says. And he prays four things, four audacious things about the church. Now you're going to hear them and you're like, those aren't very bold or audacious. That's because you don't realize how incredible they are. And we're used to praying like, help Aunt Sally of so-and-so and help us be faithful. And that's fine. But this is the kind of prayer if you want help. How do I pray for my church? Just pray this. He says, first, that the church may be strengthened by the indwelling life of Christ by his spirit. He's saying, Father, we bow before you that you would give us renewed strength by your spirit to let Christ be more and more at home in our hearts. In other words, I know Christ is living in you, Paul was saying to Christians, I know Christ is his, your, your heart is his home, but there's rooms in your heart that he's not yet worked through because you're not letting him. And so I'm praying that God would give you the strength to open up doors, to open up the kitchen, to open up the living room, and open up closets in your heart to let Christ in to dwell richly in you. Do you pray that for other believers? Um, that's a genuine question. Have you ever prayed that for other believers? Second, Paul prays that we may be rooted and grounded in love that would be so rooted in God's love that it produces the fruit of lavish love for each other. This is especially important the more diverse a church becomes, that we would love each other in a way that reaches across barriers, right? That our love would conquer our fears of each other, conquer our judgments of each other. Do you pray this? Do you pray that, that we would love each other so deeply that it would conquer our barriers? Third, he prays that we would know Christ's love in all its dimensions. He says that in verse 18, that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. Listen, the love of Christ is so simple, even a child can grasp it. And yet so profound that even the most brilliant scholar like Paul would never fully grasp it. Know something interesting in verse 18. He said that you may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints. It's like he can't get around saying this is a corporate affair. This is a gathering affair. This is a people of God affair. He's saying it takes the people of God together to more fully understand the love of God. How do you experience God's love in a deeper way? By being with other believers. Not all the time, but, but much of the time. 
by being in fellowship with them, by being intentional about being around them. There have been times in my life when I've so desperately needed a tangible expression of God's love. And at just the right moment, a fellow believer or my fellow believers come, come through in this tangible expression of God's own love for me. That's my testimony. As much as I shared earlier about the wounds, listen, when I was a young, young boy grieving the loss of my dad who died suddenly, and I was, I was fatherless, it was faithful men in the church who stepped in and helped father me through my adolescent years. When my family moved eight months ago, three streets down in Bowie, to a house that needed significant work, and we were overwhelmed, the family of God stepped in and did what I thought was literally impossible. And people are coming in our house every day and connections are being made. Oh, I didn't know you do this. Oh, I didn't know you, you, were, you were part of here. I didn't know. And there's these beautiful connections. I'm like, God, I just wanted my faucet fixed and you're creating connections for people to go to South America and Asia and, and all kinds of stuff. So I'm just going to sit back because obviously I don't know what I'm doing. I still need the faucet fixed, Lord, but uh, you do whatever else you want to do. This is an imperfect church. And it grieves my heart to know that some of you may have been hurt by a church and by even this church. I can't take anything back that has been said or done. But I can invite you to experience the love of Christ through this body of Christ. This is a flawed church, but I can tell you there is genuine love here. And love covers over a multitude of sins. God's love flows through this congregation in incredible ways. Paul prays finally that we would experience the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The more you experience God through your union with Christ, the more you become like Him. That's just how it is. You behold Christ and you grow more and more like Christ from one degree of glory to another. So I'm asking that we would all pray with boldness these four prayers for our church, for each other. This is what it looks like to do extra, for God to do extraordinary things in and through us. Listen, church can be messy and hard, but that just shows how desperately we need to depend on God to do far more, as Paul says, that we could ask or imagine. Listen, do you believe he can do that? I was at the car wash, last thing, and I'm closing. I was at the car wash, a guy pulls up, he's getting his car wash, he looks Middle Eastern, we strike up, strike up a conversation, he says he's from Iraq, he's a businessman, he, he's doing well, he's got this really nice car, we're glad to wash his car, and we're just chatting, I'm telling him, why you, I wanted to give a donation, no, 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 we don't take donations, why? Here's why, here's the good news of Jesus, oh, oh why did you stop by? Oh, he's like, it's the craziest thing, I'm FaceTiming my daughter and my wife who are in Dubai, UAE. I'm FaceTiming there while I'm driving. Okay. Um, <laughs> and my daughter says to me, she's like seven or eight, and my daughter says to me, Daddy, what are those people outside your window? He was at a stoplight. What are those people doing? And he says, oh, those people, it, it says they're doing a free car wash. So how you doing, baby? Daddy, you should go get your car wash from them. <laughs> what? You should go get your car. He's like, really? You think, yes, Dad, go get your car washed. Okay. He turns around and gets his car washed. Are you kidding me? 
Are you kidding me? A man who follows the way Islam comes to our car wash because his daughter in the UAE tells him, yeah, I see that person behind you holding a sign. You should get your car wash. And he's like, okay. Don't you realize God can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine? And when you lose sight of it, just like I do often, I pray we would remind each other now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think according to his power at work in us, to him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever, amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. I thank you that we have all of you. And yet I pray that we would experience the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God through our union with Christ by your Spirit. For those who don't know you, I pray that they would trust Christ even this moment, that they would cry out in humility and say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me, to come into my life and make me new. I trust you as my Savior today. For those who have been hurt by church, by a group of Christians, Lord, maybe today would be the first step of healing, of of letting go of that, that offense that has been caused, that wound. Maybe they need to talk to someone. Maybe they need to talk to one of the pastors here or a counselor. God, I pray that you would nudge them to take that first step. God, for all of us, May the glory of your name be the passion of this church. When we're tired, when we're weary from from what it feels like, everything else taking the focus and distracting from your glory and beauty, God, would you please remind us anew every time that you, Jesus, are the thing that we are about. You are everything. Other things matter, but nothing ultimately matters like you. And may that comfort us and unify us and send us out on mission. Jesus, we pray this in your great name. Amen.